good Wednesday morning. Today we are going to kind of be talking about Jordan Peterson. I live in Boise, Idaho, and last night me and some friends went and saw him come and speak. I think the tour is beyond order, and it was great. They opened everything up with a classical guitarist, and then his Jordan Peterson's wife came out and spoke, gave a story, and then Jordan talked. And he talked a lot about rule number eight in his book about do not lie. And then his stories throughout the conversation uh, when he was sharing were a lot of biblical stories. Cain and Abel talked about Exodus, just talked a lot about the Bible. And me and John uh, were just bantering about that. I figured I'd hit the record button uh, as John has had the opportunity to speak alongside him. So what are your thoughts on Jordan Peterson? He's a conundrum in some ways. All sorts of things surprise you, and then something else surprises you in the opposite direction, if I can put it that way. When he talks about anything to do with psychology, he's very well informed. Nobody ever gets the better of him. And then every now and again, something pops up that's just, wow, why was he so slow getting to that one? Of course, he he grew up in northern Alberta, really, and so he didn't have a, a flying star, but he did then go off and end up teaching at Harvard for a while before he came to Toronto. Yeah, during that whole period, he didn't pick up on Solzhenitsyn for a long, long while. I thought everybody picked up on him uh, years ago. Uh, a bit of an oddball, but my goodness, he understands that the central issues are the most important ones. Uh, and John Peterson now agrees with him, you know, and that's driven him further and further into uh, an understanding, reading the Bible and understanding life from that point of view. And one of the things uh, that surprises me is that so far he's still sticking to a considerable degree at quite a basic level of what ought to be and was self-evident in our culture. I mean, the rules of life are, how do I put it? They were built into our cultural structure from over thousands of years back to the Jews, 2,000 years of Christianity, uh, 2,000 years of Judaism before that, or three, uh, it's astonishing that uh, he had to rediscover some of those things despite that education. That that tells you how far we have fallen, and uh, I need at this point actually to, while I still think of it, to uh, expand a little bit because I got a, an interesting email from a good friend last, last week about the way in the last issue I, I talked about the fact that God primarily looks at our intentions rather than our actions. And uh, I, Harry called me and said, well, I, I remember good intentions paved the way to hell. Um, and various other similar uh, colloquial statements. So I need to point out that I'm quoting the Christ in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He, he says there will be people at the judgment who come and say, Lord, we did this, that, and the other, raise the dead, uh, all sorts of good things. And he says, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. That's absolutely terrifying concept. Uh, because Christ looks at our hearts, uh, our deepest intents. And that's a key idea. 
we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. We know we aren't. Uh, or if you have become so content in that area, please tell me how you did it, because I can never go for a week without being uh, destroyed by my own behavior, so to speak, when I sit down and think about it. We all have those faults, and Christ sees those. The God unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets can be hid. That's who he is. So his love for us is not earned by what we do. It's a gift, it's grace. But then, as I grew up in a, a church that certainly thought of conversion and the Bible as all you really needed, and then I began to realize that there's a big process going on here. Uh, I was just, when thinking about this, and I've already quoted it once this morning, consider yourselves dead to sin. I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about that passage from Romans when I was just in university. And he asked the question, why does Paul say we are to consider ourselves dead to sin? Because, because we aren't. At one level, every day we lose our temper with people, we, we say unkind things, we do worse, we lie to one another uh, because we can't bear the truth. But Paul says you ought to consider yourselves dead to all that. Now, you don't have to consider yourself something. If it's a reality, it's just who you are. But what Paul is saying is you've, you've got to get your head around the idea that you're now in the kingdom by the grace of God. And that's merely the entry ticket. Christ now wants to work with you. Lewis's wonderful analogy, one of my favorite analogies, which say so much in so few words. He talks about Christ coming to live with us, which is what happens with salvation. And we say, well, that's a nice idea. I'm amazed he'll come and live my, in my humble cottage. Uh, he thinks of him more as a visitor, and then he says, then I realize he's doing some renovations. Well, my cottage needed some renovations. But then I realize he's pulling walls down. He's extending it. He's putting a wing out there and another one out there. And then you realize he's building a castle. And he's t he intends to come and live in it with you. The picture is so big uh, that we need help to get our heads around it. And it should stimulate us in terms of what we will and will not do. Uh, things that get in the way and things that help. And slowly he's working on us. And the idea of reconstructing a house is rather a good analogy. He's always repeating this sort of thing. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for uh, the Lord is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure, not yours at first sight. And even the Lord's Prayer, which we just fly, fly through every time. Um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Has ever thought about that in recent times? Uh, our media are full of 
crudity and blasphemy, the idea that there's a, a God who needs to be hallowed, who needs to be understood in an overwhelming sense. It's good for us, but nevertheless overwhelming because he's making us stronger, making us fit, if you like, uh, to live and be with him. So when I, I say that Christ looks at our intentions, not at our actions, that's because our actions are a long way from our best intentions. And we need to think about that for a long while. And then you start tracing it. It's in all the epistles. And the early church clearly had more sense of this than we have. Uh, they had a joy that came from the presence of Christ. You, you look around Christians today, look at, look at yourself, look myself, look at myself. Uh, I'm not a bubble of joy at, at one level. And then I stop and think, and my goodness, I say, well, but I'm never fearful which is on the way. And joy in, in the New Testament, again, Jesus, when you are persecuted, rejoice. That, that's an amazing statement. It, he commands rejoicing, so it cannot be subjective. It's objective joy. And then he gives you two reasons. Look at the company you've joined. They, they persecuted me, they're persecuting you, and you have a reward in heaven. Uh, we are content with such little pictures. We have lost the big picture to a considerable degree, especially the young. Getting the right places, the right things in the right places is, is so important. In, uh, I was just listening before joining Craig this morning uh, to Tucker Carlson uh, talking about why he's moved to Twitter. Uh, and saying something that, that initially I, I stopped, he said, uh, freedom of speech, if you don't have freedom of speech, you, you don't have anything else. Well, I put, um, it, normally I say, if you don't have the right to life, you don't have anything else. I think that's even more fundamental at one level. But life, Tucker is right about, without freedom of speech, then... You can't learn, you can't grow, uh, you're just a cog in a machine. You can be manipulated, and he illustrates how the media do that. They tell you half stories, and the story has to fit the narrative. Now, it's got so bad with the young, of course, that they've got this basic disease of having a, an ordering of the goods. I always have to be careful about that phrase because most people think of goods in material terms, but I'm using the term in the old sense. The goods are those ideas, those insights that make our life what it is. Uh, prudence is a love, is a good. Truth is a good. Justice is a good. Uh, fidelity is a good. They're immaterial, the immaterial goods. And without them, we cannot have a full life. Now, it's not enough to have them laid out as though you have a smorgasbord and take the ones you want. They're related to one another in an orderly fashion. That's why Tucker stopped me in, 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 the, in my tracks for a moment when he put freedom of speech 
uh, at number one. Well, I think that's slightly disordered. It isn't number one because some speech should be cancelled. Hallowed be thy name means that some things just are not said in our society because they are so wrong. Uh, truth must come at the top of the list. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is slips off our tongue so easily. Uh, we can't get to where we need to without the way that Christ produces in, uh, in, in, and, and gives us grace. Uh, but then it's immediately truth. Truth is so central. Now, the young people today are cancelling classes, walking out of classes, simply because somebody has said something that they don't like. They won't stop and argue about it. They just riot and, and say, you're evil, you're nasty, you're bad. Uh, the gay community, so-called, is now facing cancellation by the transgenderites because uh, they've got two things, that neither of which are top of the list, and they're arguing about them violently and in the process destroying their own culture. It's going down the drain because of this phenomenon. Truth must be reinserted into our lives, and obviously it starts in the family. Uh, I I must have mentioned by now, and I look at the list of things that are on, on my uh, site that Craig has produced, uh, uh, but it's worth saying again and again and again, all the important things have to be said again and again and again. Um, truth must be taught to children as important, as of primary importance, and that's not happening. When you think about transgenderism, for instance, it's an attack on truth. It's a failure to appreciate that some things are more important than others and they have to be lived with, they have to be faced, and instead, and our immediate desires are being put at the top of the list all the while. That's just astonishing. But it, it has always been Satan's way of dealing with us, to get the goods disordered, and then he can manip manipulate us. When a child tells the truth, always celebrate the truth-telling and then negotiate the poison, the, the, <laughs> the, poison, uh, the consequences. But celebrate the truth first so that it becomes second nature to them. Uh, that, that You cannot give a child a greater gift than to be truthful, it, especially in, in the world that's coming down the pike towards us, where so many people who are not Christian are nevertheless recognizing that the hardest thing to find will be people you can trust. And you, if, you, if you're not truthful, you cannot be trusted not legitimately. So at that point, you have to start using technological means to deal with moral problems. And they get out of hand in no time flat. They build a structure and a life of their own. It's called totalitarianism. It's totalitarianism. It's just the disordering of the goods. Truth has been displaced. And now, whatever one it happens to be at the time, power to the people or whatever, and then the language gets manipulated. And that we need to become much, much more sensitive to. 
Uh, I was also this week looking at a bit of uh, reading a little of Tom Sowell. I often pick up Tom Sowell's Intellectuals and just read a few pages that I've read before, but uh, usually it's not very long before I put it down because I've got something I need to get my teeth into again. And, uh, I was reading a, a section where he points out that well, he points out many times and many places that the elite who rule us don't make things. What they do is manipulate language. Uh, Obama was perhaps one of the best examples of this. He only manipulated language. Uh, you can't point to anything he did, made, or created that has been good. Uh, whereas we are made to have that level of uh, proper behavior, which I've been watching at the back of my house as uh, three young men have been rebuilding my deck, which was collapsing. And uh, talking to them, they're, they're in their 20s and 30s. Uh, they enjoy the work they do. They enjoy creation. That's what they're doing. They're making something and they're adjusting it as they go along to things they discover about the house. Um, that's satisfying. It's real. It's mundane knowledge. They know how to use their tools. and They've got an experienced boss who comes and, and looks and says X, Y, Z. Mundane knowledge is what Tom Sowell calls it. So, in the uneducated environment in which I grew up, there was lots of mundane knowledge. Virtually everybody worked at the same sort of job for most of their lives, and they knew how to do some things, uh, and they did them well, and they took pride in them. That has been destroyed in the modern world by uh, uh, an unbridled growth of technology. And you see the response where people are, are try constantly trying to find a little niche where they can have something that they can take pride in. You, you don't take pride in being a machine minder. You used to take pride in making the tools that the machines use, but that's now been taken over by the machines themselves. And artificial intelligence that's, that's coming along, uh, it doesn't have a, a concept called truth in its categories. There's no transcendent qualities to chat. It's just copying and maneuvering things on the basis of algorithms. Uh, I tried it out. Uh, I had an intriguing experiment that I could do. I'd just written uh, one of my quarterly columns for uh, CMDA, Christian Medical Dental Association of the US. And so I thought, I th let's see what chat GBT or whatever it's called uh, would do with my name which would lead them to what, presumably anything that I've left lying around on uh, the internet and uh, uh, a couple of ideas that were secular, I forgot which ones I chose uh, that were in the, the thing I'd written and then I waited to see what came now it had a lot of um characteristics which I could recognize as being mine, but 
it entirely missed the centrality of transcendence. He couldn't handle that. Uh, that was intriguing. I, I probably need to think about it some more. And I was like, if any of you know of anybody who's discussed transcendence and artificial intelligence, uh, I'd be interested to read it. Uh, um, meanwhile, I will cogitate as I go along on it. But uh, the things that are unseen belong to God. Um, and there is a, a world of reality, as we all know, when Christ comes into our life. We can't describe what he's done, but we can't deny that it's happened. But it's indescribable. So artificial intelligence won't come close to it, I think. That's the case. We'll see. Um, I'm wandering on, and I shouldn't, but I will make it a bit sharper by reading to you one of my favorite quotations, which I intended to start with, but that's always the way it goes. This is from Wendell Berry's lovely book, uh, Life is a Miracle. Um, in my family, well, my wife and I, I uh, gave this book to Sally. I said, I think you might enjoy this. Well, she really did enjoy it. She ended up sending about half a dozen pages of quotations to her children. But uh, only Wendell Berry could write a book, the first chapter of which uh, is about King Lear, or a, a, the subplot of Gloucester in King Lear, and Lear giving away his kingdom and then his daughters turning on him. Uh, in order to get to deconstructing the reductionistic ideas of E.O. Wilson and the like, this is what he wrote. The problem, I put in there, of reductionism is what he's talking about, as it appears to me, is that we are using the wrong language. The language you, we use to speak to the world and its creatures, including ourselves, has gained a certain analytical power, along with a lot of expertish pomp, but has somehow lost much of its power to designate what is being designated analyzed or to convey any respect or care or affection or devotion towards it. As a result, we have a lot of genuinely concerned people calling upon us to save a world which their language simultaneously reduces to an assembly of perfectly featureless and dispirited ecosystems, organisms, environments, mechanisms and the like. This is what you see when uh, you get somebody from the government being questioned uh, in your House of Representatives, I was watching one this week, about uh, net zero uh, without any concept of how the world works at a deeper level. I mean, we don't make or break carbon. It's a, a, an element and it has a a huge recycle process going on over thousands of years right back to the core to break up all the organic molecules and bring back the elements, so to speak. Well, not so to speak, that's what it does. But we're all carbon uh, creatures. Every living creature is organically composed of organic chemicals. Uh, the inorganic world is a different world. And getting from the inorganic to the organic is something we can't do. Only God can do it. Um, that's one of the, the, the realizations which makes most of the discussion about creation and evolution 
redundant, basically, but we're not going to get to that today. So uh, Wendell Berry is already seeing that the people who are going to talk about these things uh, have lost the capacity to do it properly. He goes on, it is impossible to prefigure the salvation of the world, whether it be from global warming or in any other way, in the same language in which the world has been dismembered or defaced. By almost any standard, it seems to me that the reclassification of the world from creature to machine must involve at least a perilous reduction of moral complexity. So must the shift in our attitude towards the creation from reverence to understanding. So must the shift in our perceived relationship to nature from that of steward to that of absolute owner, manager and engineer. So must our permutation of holy to holistic. I had a discussion about this this week with my uh, nursing granddaughter who's being taught that they do holistic medicine without too much understanding of what might be at stake. At this point, I can only declare myself. I think that the poet and scholar Kathleen Rain was correct in reminding us that life, like holiness, can be known only by being experienced. To experience it is not to figure it out, or even to understand it, but to suffer and rejoice in it as it is. In suffering it, and rejoicing in it as it is, we know we cannot understand it completely. We know, moreover, that we do not wish to have it appropriated by somebody's claim to have understood it. That's what the elite do all the while. Though we have life, it is beyond us. We do not know how we have it or why. We do not know what is going to happen to it or to us. It is not predictable. Though we can destroy it, we cannot make it. It cannot accept by reductionism at the very grave risk of damage, be controlled. It is, as Blake said, holy. To think otherwise is to enslave life and to make humanity, to make not humanity but a few humans its predictably inept masters. And we don't want those masters looking after the world. That's why wisdom is found amongst ordinary humble people and is almost entirely different from the people who look upon themselves, missing from the people who call themselves elite or think of themselves as elite. The World Economic Forum is a basic example of reductionism gone mad. There's no humanity left in it. That's a bit stark. Saul's example of that uh, is uh, phrases that I've used and misused. Uh, Trickle-down theory is one. Uh, it's it has no there's no data for it. Uh, and the the other area that he points out, people simply don't look at. Uh, in economics, uh, they don't want to look at the hard data, which he does all the while. And it's not a zero sum out there. Uh, that 
nonsense is going on all the while. And he, the, I hadn't appreciated this, but he points out that taxation, for instance, is the standard left-hand end of the spectrum of the way to raise money to make the poor better. They think zero-sum, total amount of money, if you've got more than me, you took it from me. That's entirely missed the idea of the creation of wealth, which is the central miracle of my lifetime. I mean, going from a point of view where I grew up on a $20 a week budget for my the family I grew up in, uh, to today, that's orders of magnitude more wealth, which, which has been created primarily by the Industrial Revolution and applied science. But it, along the way, we're losing the foundation of that, which was um, a society which was founded on thousands of years of recognition that God ultimately is in control and that he is a God of love and a God of order. Therefore, under the surface chaos of life, we must be able to find order. And that's where the whole thing started. Uh, really kicked off in the 13th century. The, the, the scientific revolution was way before the so-called Renaissance. Uh, the Enlightenment, which McIntyre preferred to call Mendarkenments, and you could see it. There's no depth to our young people. They, they, they have no historical knowledge. And so they're vulnerable to any... Uh, but he is clever with words and sounds impressive. So in every case in the States, when taxes were cut, uh, tax, taxation income increased. Isn't that interesting? I think that's the way to put it. When taxes are cut, taxation increase, it, taxation income increases. That's Tom Sowell. He doesn't put it that way. And the reason is very simple. Very smart people, if they see taxation levels and their income group going up, they, they transfer a lot of their wealth to things that can't be got at. That's why they, they've they made a an industry out of art that is rubbish because it's a, they can store money there in a way that can't be taxed. At the moment you lower taxation, then they start thinking about ways to increase their money and they become productive in ways that they're capable of doing. So um, Sol points out multiple multiple times in your economic history where uh, that has happened. But do the, do the kids know anything about that? No. Is it taught? No, they're, they're being propagandized continuously. But that's probably my, my bit for today. That was good. If you guys are listening, uh, John referenced earlier on about intentions and he was referencing a Q&A kind of talk that we did about uh, a question that was written in by a physician's assistant student and then also a book well a book i'd recommend after hearing john just talk would be after you believe why christian character matters which would be a good book in reference to where john was talking about jesus is wanting to build a home and doing add-ons and there's a lot of things happening after you become a christian and life is a miracle Wendell Berry's book. Life is a Miracle, Wendell Berry, W-E-N-D-E-L-L, Berry, B-E-R-R-Y. Good place to get books in the U.S. is Thrift Books. I've ordered a lot of my books on thriftbooks.com, and it's a great option for picking up some of these books cheap. And they come pre-written in, so it's interesting to see other people's thoughts and notes in them. See you next week. <laughs>